Well, I just feel God's presence here this morning, don't you? I didn't know if I was going to be here. I drove a car out to Wyatt in Colorado on Wednesday night, and, and then we flew back yesterday, and we, our airline tickets were so cheap, I was, I was convinced they was going to bump us. Uh, but they didn't, and so I'd had Christy have one in the barrel. If I had known Dr. Purdue was here, I'd have told him to have one in the barrel. I'm sure he does, but uh, uh, we're going to be losing Christy for a while. She's going to be serving as an interim at St. Paris, and so we're, it's going to be hard not to see her around, and so we'll be praying for her as she ministers. That's in Champaign County? So she's going to be ministering at St. Paris here for, for probably a longer interim, and, uh, and we'll be praying for her and and, uh, and Jay is going to lead worship for her. No, you're not? Okay, okay. <laughs> I thought maybe that was happening. But uh, it's always good to have staff that can just step in. And uh, Christy does such an excellent job, and Josh does. And, and so I'm thankful for that. But we'll be praying for her in our, in our interim time. We're, we're in our generation series, and we're talking about building a legacy together. And, and the key passage we've been using is Psalm 145.4, which says, One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. And, and I love that passage. I, you know, that, 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 that it's such a beautiful imagery of this packet, passage of, of both generations communicating on, on the glory of the Lord. I mean, I, I believe as you read this, this just isn't about older telling younger, but it's also about younger telling older what God is doing in the midst of their generation. And, and, and even though in our world... <laughs> Right now, there, there's, um, in the church, there's a lot of fear with the younger generation. The, the, the truth is God is doing some unbelievable things in the midst of younger people. And if you spend any time at, at Olivet or at other Nazarene universities, you can see that God is moving. It may be different uh, than, than what we're accustomed to, but God is still moving. Uh, do you believe that this morning? God is still moving, and He's moving in younger individuals. And, and so I hear stories... For my boys, um, you know, he spent time with Wyatt um, when he picked up the car, and just to hear him talk, I'm thankful that God works in the life of my boys. I don't know why I'm so emotional today. I'm, you know, so maybe I need to take a chill pill or something. You know, let's get this changed face. Uh, I hate that when you get emotional when you preach. It makes it very difficult. Um, but I'm glad that God is working in the lives of my boys, and they're seeing God move, and they believe that God still moves. And, and, I, and, and this passage kind of relates to this ideal that, that God is moving, older generations are telling younger generations how God has moved, and younger generations are sharing with older generations how God is moving in their midst. And, and it gives, it, it bolsters both's faith. The, the, the church is meant to be generational. And, and when we say that, that, that has been the phrase we've used throughout, that the church is meant to be a place where faith is passed down. Uh, that, that is God's intention, that, that faith be passed down uh, through generation to generation. And, and, and not only that, but the church is meant to reflect many generations, that, that somehow we are united together. And, and so it, it's not an easy thing when you stop and think about it, you know, because there, there is a generation gap and there are different preferences and different ways of looking at life among generations and, 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 and that's just the fact of the matter. But, but somehow God through the power of His Spirit and the power of love can unite us even though we have differences. Uh, generationally, culturally, racially, uh, by gender, God, God is trying to bring us together as a people that are united. 
And so the church is meant to be generation. And, and we're in week five of this series. And we began this series really looking at um, the distressing figures as far as, uh, as the exodus of the younger folks from the church. And, and we're blessed in this church. You look around this church, you see many generations represented. But that is not true in, the, in many churches. And many churches uh, in our denomination, many churches uh, among even our, our district. And Dr. Purdue, you're in more churches than anybody. There's many churches that are 10 years from being extinct because of the lack of younger individuals in the church. And so it's a very real concern. And, and I think we're hiding, not this church necessarily, but I believe the church as a whole is hiding its head in the sand if we are not concerned about the trend of younger folks leaving the church. And we could very well be one generation from 70% of our churches shutting their door. And I got to tell you, as, as a minister, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's not really acceptable to me, acceptable to me is it you? <laughs> and so we're, we're looking at some things that, that, that um, help churches, as one book called it, grow young. In other words, be a, a church that is attractive and not just attractive, that's probably the wrong word. I don't want to use a consumer-like word. A word where younger people find Jesus and follow him. <laughs> And that's what we want, right? We don't want to just attract uh, people, but we want to grow people into the image of Jesus Christ. And we want to do those things that, that, that allow people to do that. And we've been using uh, two, two um, resources, Growing Young, which is a, a book which looks at churches that are growing younger, and, and then The Forgotten Ways, which is a work by Alan Hirsch who is a South African theologian, and, and he has studied missional movements in, in the church, what, what happened in China, what happened in the first century, what happened in the Westland um, revival, and what was the marks of these great moves. And we've been using both these. And, and growing young, it says that the key to a church that, that's um, growing younger in its membership or allowing younger people to be a part is warm community. Uh, and, and warm community is, it can be defined as it's, it's, it's welcoming, it's accepting, it's, it's, there's a sense of belonging, uh, that the people in the church are, are authentic, that the people in the church are hospitable, uh, that the people in the church really care. This is the mark of wrong, um, growing young churches. And, and growing young churches could be described as family. And now when I use the word family, I mean family in a good sense, uh, a family that's positive and authentic and loving and caring. So, so the church is, and I believe that the imagery of family is an appropriate image for the church. Amen? You guys look half asleep. Am I boring you guys to tears right now? Uh, you kind of look, I, I wish I had a good joke to tell. Who heard, what was the best joke you heard at the picnic, right? Anybody have a good joke? All right, nobody? All right, it's going to be a rough crowd. No respect. Um, you do see that the uh, candles lit, and we had a, a, young, a young boy uh, accept Jesus as his Savior at the picnic on Sunday night, and we're praising God. Yeah, let's give God a hand for that. That's an awesome thing.
In forgotten ways, Alan Hirsch talks about a different concept that, that I think is, is very similar, and he talks about the concept of communitatis. And, and, and this is a, a community where, where there's strong bonds, and it's, it's been brought through this shared ordeal. So in the early church, there's persecution, and the early church is brought together. In, in China, the, the, there, there's, um, there's persecution, there's the withdrawal of the the, the organized church, and somehow the church grew in the midst of that, and they grew closer together. These ordeals drove them together. And in the Wesleyan um, revival, there is this commitment to each other, this, this new commitment to the, to the class and the band and the connection, and it's in that warm community, it's in that, that place of authenticity and belonging that, that the church becomes more than organization, and it becomes movement and missional and gross. We, we've seen this, or you've experienced this, I'm sure, in a local church. You ever been part of a local church where there's this real hard ordeal that the church has to go through, and somehow that hard ordeal just drives them together? I mean, I've been parts of churches where through something that seemed very difficult, God brought revival because the people came together closer. And so there's this ideal that 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 you you are truly connected it's it's not superficial but it's this deep relational connection um, and, and in these deep relational connections the the churches grow and move now for today i'd like to kind of combine those two ideals and, and, and i would say that real and warm community marks generational churches in other words, churches that, that reaches across generational bonds, that, that, that reaches across the generations, a, a church that's appealing to older people, middle-aged people, or younger people, there's, there's real and warm community. It, it, it's not fake. It's not phony. It's, it, it's not superficial. It's real. It's deep. It, it's a place that moves beyond the mask. That, that, that everything's not just for show, but we really know each other. And, and we don't really know everyone in the church, but, but we have five or six relationships in that church where they know you warts and all. That they know every, that they, they know you deeply and they still love you. <laughs> Isn't there something real powerful when somebody really knows you and they love you anyhow? And generational churches are marked by those types of relationships where, where confession can happen, where conflict is followed not by, by the cold shoulder, but by forgiveness and reconciliation, where, where, where we do the deep work of relationship. Now, now we've been tracing this through um, Paul and Timothy. And, and, and Paul and Timothy, uh, we, we, we've kind of told the story, Timothy's in Lystra, and, and Paul uh, meets him, and, and he wants to invest in him, and so he takes Timothy with him, and, and Timothy begins to minister with Paul, and Paul goes to Philippi, and, and then he's in Ephesus, and Philippi, he's, he's there quite a while in Philippi, there's a pretty significant ministry there, and then he's there even longer in Ephesus. 
uh, Paul's ministering and he, he's sending uh, Timothy and, and, and Silas. He'll, he'll send them off. He'll send these guys on different excursions. But for the most part, they're with him and he's, he's watching them. He's growing them. He's in, investing in them. Uh, at Ephesus, there's, there's all sorts of miracles that's occurring. And, and Paul ministers at Ephesus longer than anyone else, any other place in his ministry. And Ephesus has a fairly unique perspective in that Ephesus is also the place that John is historically uh, thought to be. And and so there is a a real, Ephesus becomes really, and as a matter of fact, uh, legend tells us, church history tells us that Mary, the mother of Christ, ended up in Ephesus. And so Ephesus becomes this epicenter of the church. We, we don't hear much about Ephesus. We think about Rome or we think about these other, but Ephesus seems to be this central location where Christianity takes root. And, and Paul is there for, for, for close to three years. Well, Paul decides that he needs to go back to Jerusalem. And, and so Paul is making this journey back to Jerusalem and he's going through some of these churches that he's ministered in. He goes through Philippi. And it's got my favorite story in the Bible. Paul preaches too long, and somebody's sitting up in a window and falls and dies. That's not funny, but, you know, it's funny somebody falling asleep in a service. And Eutychus is, a, there's an old story. I don't remember the evangelist, but but somebody fell off of a platform one time. And who, do you remember who that evangelist was, Dr. Purdue? Who? Okay, and McWhorter said, rise, Eutychus. And so, you know, there's all sorts of humor. Eutychus dies, and, and Paul raises him from the dead. But that's really not part of our story. Just It was humorous as I read over looking at this. And then Paul goes to Ephesus, and he wants to meet with this church that he pastored for three years. And he gives them this long, fairly long instruction, talks about his ministry, uh, what he did in this ministry there. And, you know, there's this, this just expressing his love for them and, and their love for him. And, and then in verse 36 of Acts 20, and I think you got to skip a slide, Dave. Then Paul went down on his knees, all of them kneeling with him and prayed. And there was a river of tears, much clinging to Paul, not wanting to let him go. They knew they had never seen him again. He had told them quite plainly, the pain cut deep, then bravely they walked him down to the ship. This, this scene with Ephesus is so telling to me. In, in this scene with Ephesus, you can really see how deep the connection was they had for Paul. They loved Paul, and Paul loved them. There was this deep, special, unique connection, maybe more so than any other church that Paul was a part of. And I think with Ephesus, you see the image of a real and warm community. So something real was going on. Not that the church at Ephesus was perfect and never failed and never needed any instruction or never needed any help, but, but that there was something real, authentic, and warm and caring in Ephesus. I don't think God's calling us to be the perfect church. 
but I think he's calling us to be the church that's perfectly submitted and pursuing him and loving one another, right? (laughs) Matter of fact, I think God expects from time to time, some of us will mess up, but he wants us to come back with confession and forgiveness and reconciliation and work through things in a real and authentic way. And Ephesus was one of those churches. You know, Paul had ups and downs in Ephesus like any other place, but there was something special there. And Ephesus is where Paul left Timothy. <laughs> Paul said, Timothy, you go pastor these people. Now, now part of it is, I, I think that, that Paul saw in Timothy the, the dynamic possibilities he had to pastor and to lead. And Paul had this deep love for Ephesus, and he wanted to put one of his best people in Ephesus. But I think the reverse of that is true. I think Paul also saw Ephesus of this place that really cared for people, and he wanted to put his young leader someplace where he knew people would love him and care for him. Warm community. Deep connection. I think our church is doing pretty good in this area. I do. Uh, I don't think we're perfect. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I still get issues raised to me uh, of how accepting and how warm and how people fit in. I, you know, pastors, you know, do you believe this or not? Every once in a while as a pastor, I'll get a complaint. I know, I know you guys are shocked. But every once in a while, I'll still hear that, hey, we need to do this better. And, and I'll always say, yeah, we do. <laughs> but, but I think we're doing pretty well, but we can do better, right? We, we can be a closer community. We can love each other better. Amen? Amen. And so there's three things I, I, I think as we, we talk about what it means to be a warm community, three things I want you to, to think about today. And the first is this, real and warm communities take time. It's not a a programmed thing. It doesn't just occur because we want it to occur. It takes time. Who's my cooks? Who likes to cook? Anybody cook? Okay. I make the best chili you'd ever want to have. Okay. It is great. And I'll tell you the ingredients right now, and you can try to match my recipe. Ground beef, Ragu, chili powder, beans, and ketchup. Yeah, doesn't that sound dynamic? It is, it is my family. Anybody else other than me ever eat ketchup chili? I mean, that's what we call it, ketchup chili. And it is great. And I can make it one of two ways. I can make it in like 10 minutes in the microwave has the same texture, smells the same, looks the same, but it's not the same as when I cook it for 90 minutes on the stove, right? Mom makes green beans. Anytime you go into my mom's house, it's the big joke, in mom and dad's house, mom has green beans on the stove, and they've they've been on there since I've been like five. So, you you know, they're all buttered and larded up and salted up, and you know, my mom has taken green beans and made it something completely unhealthy. (laughs) But they're great. She, She calls it rendering out the water, 
right? You, you dry those things up good. And Terry knows what I'm talking about. You know, slow is the point. Real communities, real warm communities takes time. We, it just doesn't instantly happen. And, and we have to invest in other people. And we, we, we have to invest in our schedule. And as I thought about this, I, I thought about this, are, are, am I managing my schedule or is my schedule managing me? <laughs> See, the truth is oftentimes, anybody in here other than me, I am so, I am regimented. I like to have a schedule. You know, I like to know, okay, you know, when, when I'm trying to, to get into the groove of something, you know, I, this is the, the time I do this, and this is the time I do this, and this is the time I do this. And, and oftentimes, when, when I become so regimented in my schedule that I'm like that, you know what gets squeezed out? Relationship with other people. When I am so regimented that my schedule is managing me, that the first thing that falls through the cracks is relationship with other people. And so if we want to have real and warm community, it takes time. We have to see it as an investment. We have to see that it's worthwhile. This past summer, Spencer and I bought Kings Island season passes, okay? Seemed like a good idea at the time. We bought those things, and, and, and then you start, I started looking at my summer schedule and realized I didn't have any time to go to Kings Island. And so what do I have to do? I, I had to put it on the schedule. And even when I didn't want to go, I had to make the drive because I saw the value. You know, I'm cheap. I saw the value of that extra 75 bucks that I spent, and I had to make it worthwhile. Relationships are valuable. And we have to see the importance of them. And we have to invest in other people. You ever... Um, <laughs> You ever put on an old pair of pants or something and reach in the pocket and find like $3? <laughs> or, you know, you're happy with $3, but when it's like a 20, you're like praising God. You know, it's like a miracle. <laughs> you know, those little hidden treasures. Here's what I think. I think our church, and I found this to be true as I've gotten to know people, our church is full of hidden treasures. P people that if you just spend a little time and get to know them, they will add so much value to your life that you won't even be, be able to understand why you hadn't invested in them before. Real and warm communities are built on intentional individual relationships. That's kind of a mouthful. You know, I, I value... I value the big gathering. I, I, I enjoy our, our gatherings here together. They're important. They, they're, there's, a, there's a significance to community worship, you know, the, the, the community giving of the word. There's a discipleship here. Some, sometimes I, I worry about the discipleship effect in, in this setting because sometimes it's not as conversational. And, and, and I believe as we talk about these things is when they become part of our heart and our mind. But I value this. And there is a level of connection that occurs in a big gathering like this, but more has to occur. Now, it's important that what we do here reflects a community that's warm and caring and committed to one another. And so we have um, hospitality teams. Hi, Terry. We have ushers. 
And, and, and I think right now we're, we're probably at the point where we, we cover the bare minimum, but there's so much more we could do. Is that fair to say? We, we need more people. And it's important that we do things right here because you ever, you ever hear this phrase, you only get one chance to make a first impression? <laughs> and, and so unfortunately, even though we may be the most caring church in North America, people will judge us on the few minutes they come in by ushers and greeters and hospitality teams and how they're greeted here. And so it's important that in those settings that we have a program and a process set up so that, so that people can begin to understand how caring you truly are. But it moves beyond the big. Now, Sunday school and small groups are a strategy. I mean, if you're not part of a Sunday school or a small group, you need to be part of it. If you want to really get to know people, that is the beginning of it. And that is a strategy that we have in place. But even in a small group and even in a Sunday school class, you could hold people at arm's length. Right? You understand that? <laughs> that just because you're in a small group doesn't mean that you're sharing who you are with other people. What would happen if your life, in your life if you really committed to really getting to know one new person in the next six months? What would happen? Now, now I'm not asking you to get to know everybody in the church. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my belief is if, if you feel like you have to know everybody, chances are you don't really know anybody. Because we don't have the capacity as people to, to know everybody. You know, we, we, this church runs anywhere from 275 to 300 on a Sunday morning. You don't have the ability to know everybody in that, in that, uh, in that amount. How many disciples did Jesus choose? Twelve. If Jesus only chooses 12 people to invest in fully and get to know closely, then why do we think we have to know everybody? If you know five or six people very intimately, you're doing well. And so I'm not asking you to know everybody, but find one new person. Just one. In six months. So a pastor, how do I do it? How do you make any friend? <laughs> you know, one of the things I love about the Bible is how simple it is. You know, the Bible says things like, be kind, right? And we can break that down into the Greek all we want, but kindness, we know what kindness is, right? Be forgiving. You know, love other people. Uh, oh, be, be generous. And friendship in the church, getting to know people is like friendship anywhere else. It begins with conversations, setting aside time, having coffee, whatever you do as your interest. You know, have coffee with somebody, go golfing, go hang gliding with them if that's your, your, your cup of tea. Whatever it takes, do things with people. Begin to spend time with them. Friendships occur and getting to know people happens one conversation at a time. And so my, my assignment, my request is just find time for one person in the next six months. Now, Andy Stanley, uh, we, we talk about Andy Stanley, but he has some, he has some things that are, that are so sharp and so to the point. He, he talks about how in his church there's so many things he'd like to do for so many people, but his church is so big he can't, you know, he, he can only do for a few. And so he, he uses this phrase, do for one what you would like to do for all. <laughs> 
And so the truth is, maybe you want to know everybody in the church, but, but my instruction, my advice, my, my request for you is not try to do everything for everybody, but find one person, one new person, and do for them what you'd like to do for all. Now, there's two groups when we talk about this that, that I want you to particularly pay attention to. And the first is the aged, uh, particularly those who aren't able to get out as much as they'd like. I think a Ray and Rose pack and, and all they're going through, Ray's facing neck surgery. I, you know, I'm sure Ray and Ro- Rose would appreciate some cards and just some connection. And, and, and I think a, a Bill Griffith and, and, I, and I think a Gladys Castle and I, and I, and I think of uh, Mary Lou Mitchell and I think Mary Lou would appreciate cards and she can't get out like she'd like to. I, I think of some of our older folks that maybe would just some, some attempts at friendship from, from younger and older folks. I, I used to see, and, and many of you remember, uh, Eva Hamilton. Eva, Eva loved to play Skippo, <laughs> which is a card game. And let me tell you what, she was competitive. And when I, if ever, I won, and trust me, I didn't want to win because it meant we had to play again because she never would let me leave with me winning. But just those conversations you had over Skippo. You know, there's people in our church, there's elderly people in our church that some of you younger folks could spend 30 minutes and it would would drastically change your life and their life. And then our younger people. Uh, maybe, maybe you can find somebody that's in the same line of work that you were in or, or, or has the same life experience and invite a college student over for, for a meal and, and invite a young family over uh, for a time together, but find somebody in another generation. What would happen if you committed to a cross-generational friendship? And finally, real and warm communities move past fear. And, and can we get to, the, to the, the, the brunt of it? This is where most of us live in, with regard to relationships. That, that, that neighbor that we don't reach out to, that coworker we don't reach out to, that, that young family in the church, it, it's not because we don't want to, but oftentimes we're just afraid to. Amen? Is that not true? I mean, is, is that just an introvert up here talking? That, that, that most of the time we don't move past that first step because we're what? We're afraid that they'll reject us? that we're intruding, we don't want to be vulnerable. And I thought about that as, I, as we're talking about this. 1 John 4.18 says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. In the message, it says it like this, There's no room in love or fear. Well-formed love banishes fear since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, is no one yet fully formed in love. And, and, I, and I thought about what John's saying here, and, and I think John is talking about primarily your relationship with God. That, that is the central thing John is saying. He's saying God loves you, and God's perfect love can cast out that fear you have of coming towards Him. But, but you realize God's concern for us is always vertical and horizontal. That, that, that this love that God has for us, God wants to, us to pour out among each other. And, and so there, there's this truth to this passage that, that somehow I'm supposed to move past fear in relationship to others because I know that the true judge, the, one that, the only one that matters, has accepted me as I am. And so I can authentically and really move into relationship and seek to, to get to know other people even deeper. Real and warm communities are the result of individuals choosing to deeply value relationships with others. 
It's not programmed. It's not about a pastor. It's about us, the people of God, just saying that we will truly and really value each other. Now, we're going to close service today with communion, and we're going a little bit long. I'm sorry, uh, Sunday school classes. I'll, I'll try to, I'll make it up next week. I'll give you five minutes extra, okay? Uh, but uh, we're going to close with communion, and, and to me, it seems like an appropriate thing to do to, to close this service with communion. See, communion, communion does so many things, and we talk about this every time I do it, but it's important that as we receive it that we understand this. C- communion is this personal and corporate thing that we do. There, there definitely is this, this personal element of communion that as I receive communion, I am reminded that Jesus Christ died for me, yes. right? As you dip the bread in the cup and you eat the bread, you're reminded that that you are not saved by your own merit, but you are saved because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, came to earth, born of the virgin, died on a cross, was fully dead. And He bore our sins on a cross, suffered and died, and rose from the dead, so I have life. So so when I receive communion, I I am reminded of that. But communion is a corporate thing. We don't usually do this in in, in our prayer closet by ourselves. Maybe you do every once in a while. Maybe I don't know, but most of the time we don't. We do this together. And the church has been doing this together from the first century. That, That Jesus initiated as one of the primary rituals, one of the primary things that we would do, this communal eating together. And so it's fine. You know, we need to do that personal thing. But when we make it just that personal thing and that's all it is, we miss the beauty of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is inviting us to be part of a people he's saving. A community, a family, a group, a church. And so we receive it together. Now there's imagery of hospitality and table fellowship and all these things and this significant thing, this significant feast that we receive. As we receive it, we're reminded that we're together. We're eating at the same table and the Lord is the Lord of the table. The head of the table is Jesus. Let me read some scripture for us. While they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying take and eat this is my body then he took the cup gave thanks and offered it to them saying drink from it all of you this is my blood blood of the covenant which is poured out for many with the forgiveness of sins now the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians not to take communion without a sense of self awareness We, we we view communion as a means of grace. We to receive the grace of God. So we have open communion. You have to be a member here to receive communion. But I think you have to be sincerely seeking Him. So spend a moment just um, examining our own hearts. And then we're going to dismiss from the back and you'll receive it. We also have Uh, If you need communion served, just wave at one of the ushers. We'll get it back to you. Uh, There's also gluten-free if if you have allergies and you you need to use the gluten-free wafers here. Let's pray. Lord, help us.
examine our hearts. We're thankful, Lord, for this feast. It's a celebration. And I realize, Lord, most of the time we take it pretty somberly. That's because we're remembering your death, what it signifies. But Lord, this, this meal doesn't all only signify your death. It signifies our life and our life together. But somehow you can take broken people, lost people, you can redeem them. You can sanctify them. You, you can give them a new heart, a new mind. You can give them eyes that see like Jesus. You, you can teach us and grow us in your love. And you can make this place real. Not, not just a time of, that we've come together and spent time together, but Lord, a place where your spirit has fully moved in and among your people. Praise be the Lord. Now help us, Lord, as we receive these elements to be mindful of you and mindful of each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.